You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for biohacking women over 50. I'm your host, Zora Benamu, a digital nomad, certified sports nutrition and breathing coach, and master student of gerontology at the University of Southern California. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan, the cookbook Eating for Longevity, and a new upcoming program, Energy Reboot for Women 50+. Plus. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and I would totally appreciate it if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcast to help others find us too. This is a small but very critical gesture that makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for older women and to help us grow stronger and really get our voice out there and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. Hello, age disruptors. Today, I'm recording this podcast with a live studio audience. All of you attending this recording now are members of the Hack My Age VIP program. And part of being in this exclusive club is the ability to dial in and watch the interviews as they are recorded. And you can ask your own questions. If you want to be a part of this amazing community, go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age and sign up not only for these cool interviews, but so much more. Before we start, I am so excited to announce that I have been invited to speak at the Biohacking Congress in Boston on June 11th. 2022. And I'm going to be speaking about a topic that rarely gets attention in the biohacking community, and that's biohacking for women who are over 50, which looks at the specific health needs and the solutions for older women. And I'll be giving hacks to this audience that is often overlooked, but this is also valuable insight to the younger biohackers about what they could expect for their future selves. So join me on June 11th and get your tickets at biohackingcongress.com and use the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, for 20% off both the live and virtual congresses. I'll also include a link in the show notes for you, so don't worry. And if you can't make it in June, there will be many other amazing speakers at the biohacking congresses in Las Vegas in March and Miami in October. And you can still use that discount code Zora for those events too. This is going to be a super practical and fun podcast where you're going to get real life tips on how to take control of your food and exercise during the menopausal transition. So get your paper and pen out, guys, and start taking some notes. And you're lucky because today we are talking with a sports and performance dietitian, Dina Griffin. And she's also known as the nutrition mechanic. She's got a really cool nutrition coaching company based out of Boulder, Colorado in the US, and she's super qualified. She's got a whole team working with all levels of adult endurance athletes to optimize their health and get more vitality and have more athletic performance. And she likes to blend in both the science and the evidence-based strategies with real life considerations, because it's really tough because many people will read a great study or a book or a blog and on how to optimize their health and change their diet, but they really have no idea how to implement it or even if it applies to us. And that's what Dina is really great at. So she can make not only a personalized nutrition plan, but she can also show you how to make it sustainable. And the best part for, of all of this um, is that she is passionate about working with women, particularly those of us in peri and post menopause. And she can deal with those of us who are just hitting the gym a few times a week, all the way to the ultra athletes who need a totally different approach. And her training in nutrition actually started out in the clinical setting. So she's really aware and qualified to help those who are dealing with certain diseases and metabolic conditions. And Dina herself is an endurance athlete. She's into triathlons, marathons, ultra marathons. So she really practices what she preaches and she sees the impact of her approaches on herself, as well as in all kinds of women. And today, Dina is going to clear up some of the confusion we have on fad diets and 
fueling our workouts and how much protein we really need, all with the context of an older woman. Our, our needs are totally different from a man, and they're different from a 30 or 40-year-old woman even. So, And she's going to explain why. So now, without further ado, let's meet Dina Griffin. Welcome. Zora, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be with you. That was an amazing intro, by the way. <laughs> oh, you are amazing. I'm so glad I, I found you. I appreciate you. you. <laughs> Let's start out giving a quick overview on how you even fell into the field of nutrition and why you have a particular interest in, in helping women. Yes, that's a great story. I'll try to be brief. And it is kind of falling into the field of nutrition or evolving into it. So back in my 20s, I was more of a software nerd. I was doing a lot of software consulting out of college and trying to figure out my way. And I was living in the Midwest in, in the States at the time. And I actually didn't live a very healthy lifestyle. I didn't grow up eating healthfully. We just didn't have, have that knowledge or you know, certain food availability. And anyway, as I got into my later 20s, realizing that the path I was on was not the most healthful. I don't think it was going to be sustainable for living past, you know, middle life. <laughs> I won't, I won't go into the details there, but along the way I discovered running as a way to exercise. It was easy for me to just put shoes on and, and head out, find a trail and figure out how to, how to be a runner. And then in that time, I actually got a job transferred to Colorado which is where I have been since my late twenties and Colorado for anyone that's been here, you know, that it's, it's very welcoming to various outdoor activities. And so I further developed my passion for running. I was still working in software though, but I was just getting to that burnout level. And there were two things that happened. One was that my father had been diagnosed with a terminal cancer a few years prior to me moving to Colorado, he essentially transformed his nutrition. I didn't know much about, you know, the power of nutrition at that time, but he, uh, long story short, was able to prolong his prognosis by an extra three or four years from what the doctors were telling him. And I was really like keen on the lifestyle nutrition changes he made from our Midwestern pattern of nourishing the body, which really wasn't at all. It was, it was not helpful. So that turned my light bulb on, like, what is this nutrition thing? I need to look into this more. Being in Colorado on top of that, you know, the population here is quite different, very active. I'm generalizing, but then with my own running, I was having some issues fueling my body. The, the recommendations I was reading in popular magazine, it didn't work for me. I was having a lot of GI distress, getting confused, like this doesn't work what I'm reading. So those two things, the power of nutrition in disease progression or you know, minimizing that progression, slowing it or cancer specifically was fascinating to me. And then being active, what are our needs? I mean, I didn't know at the time, maybe I needed more female specific, you know, strategies, but there was something going on that wasn't working for me. And so those couple things then helped me to decide, geez, I want to be in the health realm. I think it's nutrition. It might be oncology nutrition. I don't know. I quit my job, went back to school to get a master's degree in nutrition science. Like, well, I'll figure it out as I go along. I was lucky to be able to do that, take that break and really remove myself from the, the burnout path that I was on. And so eventually I got into this field specifically now in sports, nutrition, women's health, endurance athletes. I work with men as well, but uh, that that's kind of the trajectory, Zora. So- What's the difference between men and women? Because I know you have a particular interest for women and, and you and I both took the menopause for athletes program with Dr. Stacey Sims, and we learned so much. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about, you know, what are the differences you're seeing as a nutritionist in men and women and particularly older women over 50 or through the peri and post-menopause? I think the biggie is just thinking of this notion of linear aging versus non-linear aging. So men 
you know, and again, some of this conversation, we have to generalize a little bit and we can figure out where we can dig into specifics. But I think that is a big one that's been pointed out by researchers like Dr. Stacy Sims, just acknowledging something that we didn't really put into that perspective is that men, and we can say all men, right? Not just male athletes or active men, but it's more of a linear aging process. And so the nutrition strategies, the fueling strategies, they may evolve a bit, but it's, there's not this point in middle life years where there's more flux and such individuality between men as there is with women. And so I think that's the key. If we just were to look at the 30,000 foot view, like women don't age in this linear fashion, depending on you know, even pregnancy and that effect on the years after. And then when you throw in perimenopause and that stage, which can be quite long for some women, the nutrition piece can be, you know, quite uh, delicate and fluid. What Stacy really stressed, and I've heard of this before as well, is that uh, women are not little men. And most studies are done on men and particularly sedentary men. And so the way she explains it in terms of keto diets and fasting and all this stuff, it's not really applicable to women in the same way. So what is your experience with women and, and how are they taking these approaches of these fad diets and how do they need to do things differently? It's such a good area to, to bring to the forefront. So I know you've, you've done that on some other of your podcasts too. So thank you for just bringing it continually to the radar. Cause I think that is something where we, and if you're, you know, I'm 51, I'm proud to say that I'm not ashamed of it, but if you're in this age group, especially from, you know, the States where we grew up in the seventies and eighties, a lot of diet culture, right? There's a lot of, it still is permeating our culture, but there's this lure to either quick fix ourselves or thinking that we need to quick fix ourselves. And then there's that, that diet du jour that's drawing us in and, and keto or some of the others are Flashing the certain body sizes and types and all these success stories, quote unquote success stories. But if we look at where some of these diets originated, it is more in that clinical basis. And so how do we take a diet or a diet trend that had its origins in more of a medical condition or clinical setting and apply it to active women, especially then throwing on top of that our menopausal Um, life cycle stage when the origin of the diet maybe was in um, more sedentary individuals or obese population or a sick population. It's just not an apples to apples translation or application. So I think those are the things a lot of us just didn't know or we're not, didn't know, but we're learning. And I think it's important to spread that message that we really have to educate ourselves before diving into a particular diet to figure out, is this applicable to me in my setting? Give us an example. Like what happens when say one of your female clients who are going through peri or post-menopause jumps on a fad diet or reads a book and starts doing something or even exercising, uh, doing something. And then she's not really looking at with the context of someone her age and her profile, are there any health consequences that you've been seeing and how do you correct that? Yeah, unfortunately, there are a number of consequences. And I I feel like I have a little bit of a a biased selection here or population too. I don't know if you can relate to this sort because sometimes people come to us because they've tried these things or they've been on this, this particular diet and things aren't going the way they thought or they're having trouble. So now we have to put our fixer upper hats on and, and dig in and maybe backtrack a bit. Some of the things I see, I mean, even from blood work, I can see um, lipid panels showing some or other markers of inflammation or other diagnostic testing showing some out of range values with respect to, I mean, I can just say generally cholesterol or markers of other inflammation going on in the body. 
when I look at the nutrition aspect, a lot of times I'm also seeing patterns of under eating, or it's almost like a malnourishment fine line because we can think we're getting enough food based on what the book's saying or, you know, what it's so-and-so is doing. And we're trying to be aggressive and go all in and like hit this thing hard. But over time, the under meeting of our needs, our nutrition needs, our energy needs, trying to align that with our exercise patterns, there's, there becomes this mismatch or this imbalance, so to speak, where then our energy availability is negatively affected. And then, you know, we may feel awesome for two, three months and that's hard, right? Because maybe we lose a few pounds or we feel great in the beginning, this thing's working, but over time, especially with this under fueling bit, um, there's a whole host of downstream consequences uh, from thyroid to, to actually gaining abdominal fat is counter to what we would think. But then there can be a whole host of other systems in the body that are negatively affected. So that can just mess then with mental, you know, emotional states. And, and there we go. Like, oh no, I, I failed at this diet and I need to find a new one. And the cycle starts all over again. Yeah, I know. And we're, we're talking about not only people who want to lose weight, but we're talking about people who maybe want to gain weight or gain muscle, um, especially in the older population. We're thinking about sarcopenia, not losing our muscle mass, gastrointestinal issues, uh, anxiety, stress. I mean, all of this people come to you. It's not just about losing weight and hitting their, their PR or something, you know, there, there's so many other things I'm sure people see you for. So let's talk about, you mentioned, um, low energy state and, and under fueling. And this is something that Dr. Stacey Sims also talks a lot about. So I'm, I'm, I've learned about it from her, but I'm sure you knew about this before too, but what do you mean by fueling workouts and what are you seeing with the women in our, our age category getting it wrong. Yeah. Thank you, Zora. I think that's a great thing because sometimes I assume we're all on the same page, but it's good to review some of those things, fueling workouts. So even if you, uh, the listener think I'm not, you know, a high performing athlete, I'm not doing enough to warrant caring about what I eat before a workout or what I eat after, I would say, hold the phone. Let's pause right there. Because if you're doing exercise, you're doing a workout, we can call it whatever you want, a training session. We do, you do need to think about what kind of nourishment or nutrition and hydration you're putting around and in perhaps those workouts. So the fueling is thinking about what is it I'm about to do from an exercise modality perspective, lifting, running, swimming, yoga, whatever. What's the intensity? How long is this session? Is there something else later in the day I'm supposed to do? And what am I doing tomorrow in this whole week? Thinking more on that micro scale within the day and then broadening that more macro level. What am I, what am I shooting for? What am I working towards? And so those are considerations that then allow us to personalize what that fueling for the workouts should look like or can look like, tinker with it. As you appreciate well, Zora, there's so many nuances to how we live our day, what time of day we're trying to sneak all this stuff in or the other health concerns that might be going on that can affect the decision-making and the planning around this piece. This episode is sponsored by Primadine, a supplement that if I had to choose only one, it would pretty much be this one. It's because Primadine is spermidine, and this has been shown to activate autophagy, which is super important, and it's basically a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. When we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and a lot of waste, and this isn't really great for us, so we need to clean it up. So if you want some research, go to primadine.com, and you can see all of it supporting cognitive health and heart health, hormone balancing, and long and strong hair, nails, and eyelashes by using spermidine. So another very important reason why I love primidine in particular so much is that I've never had received 
ever as much feedback about a product as I have with Primadine. Literally several times a week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And most of the time it's about improved sleep. So I can honestly say that I can 100% be convinced now that Primadine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on primadine.com. And that's P-R-I-M-E-A-D-I-N-E.com. Now enjoy the show. You've covered so much, and this is why people need to get into a personalized nutritional approach, because there are so many questions around this, thinking about I get questioned, well, I'm not even really sweating. I'm just kind of lifting some weights and so maybe a moderate workout, or I don't hit it really hard, but I think I should go into training in a fasted state. I've been like that all the time, but they have trouble gaining muscle. So what would you say to somebody who's not like hitting it really hard at the gym, just general exercise and should they be fueling their workout? And and what does that mean? Also, the other thing I wanted to add on to that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you did mention before is the day after what's happening the day after what's happening. Is it just fueling the training, the eating an hour before eating an hour after, or are we talking about the rest? What do you eat in the rest of the day and the next day? Brilliant. I think this is so great because it really is a continuum in my view, what we're eating today or before workout is going to affect the long-term adaptations we're seeking. So if it is building muscle or maintaining fitness, working on other aspects of health, it's such a continuum. So it's even though we feel like, oh, this is just for this meal right now, it's all that matters. It's this hour of energy Okay, that's true. But over time, the pattern, right? The pattern is what will lead or contribute to those gains or adaptations or whatever it is we're looking for from a health and performance perspective or body composition perspective. You might have to repeat the question, Sora, because I just went off on on a little tangent right there. Yeah, no, I know. Because there's, I'm sure there's so much to talk about. It's more of that question of, I get, I'm not working out that hard or I'm not sweating. I'm just doing a little general strength training. I'd like to go into a fasted training state. Is that not a good thing if they're looking to build muscle and avoid sarcopenia, say? So if we do bring that aspect of the context in, what are we trying to achieve? Which I think is the key when we talk about fasted workouts, because I know I know it's said more often, women should never do fasted workouts. I might dispute that a bit in some circumstances. It depends what the workout is, depends what our health status is. Uh, It depends on that kind of exercise we're doing. So for you to mention building muscle or trying to stave off some of this sarcopenia, maybe the age-related loss of muscle mass and function. I would say the fueling beforehand will make a difference. But again, this has to go over time and we have to make sure we're doing the right kind of strength training to build muscle as well. And it's the after that you brought up, you know, the whole day, are we getting in enough energy period? Because we can eat protein around our workouts, but if we're not getting enough overall calories, then we may not be able to build muscle like we think or what we expect. So we need some, you know, it can be tricky when we're trying to manipulate body composition in and of itself, this like, well, you need to eat adequate or maybe in excess. And we have to look at the timing of nutrition. We have to look at perhaps quality, right? If we're doing a more restricted plan for, for some of the vegan followers where we might need to get more particular and down into the weeds with amino acids and, and really particular with timing, which I would argue would apply to most people. So to answer your question, I would say if you're not seeing improvements in lean muscle gain or mass, then looking at fueling is a consideration just within the day afterwards, and then overall what your pattern is. And then if you want, or I can go into the 
the other part of your question, which was what about the next day? If we're even if we weren't or something, yeah. Recovery day. Yeah, exactly. So if, if tomorrow is more of a, a lower key day, we're, you know, maybe walking or doing some other, um, mobility work, yoga or something, but it's not an intense lifting day or another endurance day. I would say to keep in mind, we're still, you're still training, even when it's a rest day, it's still part of our overall fitness plan to build in our recovery days. So it's not a day to cut our calories excessively. It's not a day to under fuel even no matter if that's a few hundred calories less or whatnot, but sometimes our appetite signaling gets affected depending on the kind of block of exercise we're in or training we're in. So sometimes we may not feel that hungry, but some women actually feel heightened sense of hunger. And that can be confusing because our mind is saying, well, I'm not doing much today. I don't deserve (laughs) or I don't need, but yet what if there's some carryover from the previous day or the previous set of days and this is your body trying to tell you, I need a little bit more fuel here. Um, so how you overcome that, you know, and work through it emotionally or mentally is, is one part of the challenge. Um, but we can certainly look for us in, um, perimenopause menopause years, look at the quality of the the nutrition that we're going to give ourselves for that day to make sure we're stabilizing blood sugar, getting adequate calories, getting satiety from how we build our meals. That's a great answer. Do you see, is there great variation in terms of the amount of protein a woman in peri and postmenopause would need in terms of some just doing kind of gentle exercise movement all the way up to ultra marathoners or somebody intense? I might see a touch more with the, you know, the ultra athlete because the overall expenditure is, you know, the overall energy expenditure is higher. Although if we compare protein with fat and carbohydrate, I'd say that of the three is more steady, more consistent across all women, but I'll say relative for our group, um, over 50, I'll say compared to, you know, maybe 20 years young or 30 years young, we can benefit from increasing our overall protein. Even if we are just, I don't, I don't mean just, but even if, if we're more of a um, fitness enthusiast, really bumping up protein in our perimenopause, postmenopause years has benefit now. And then what's to come, right? Looking at bone health, um, a number of other aspects related to to how brain works and some of these um, immunity and so forth. Yeah, those are really big ones. When we hit our fifties, we're worried about our brain health and our osteoporosis and things. So these are super important. And I think uh, as you, with your background, you'd probably agree. Yeah, strength training or impact is probably pretty good for your osteoporosis or avoid that. So, what is the biggest problem you're seeing? in peri and postmenopausal women in their diets and exercise and lifestyles? You know, sometimes Zora, it isn't the food, it's the other things. It's sleep patterns that are really, it can be hard, especially if we're having a lot of the signs, symptoms of perimenopause. I like to call them experiences because I feel like signs and symptoms means it's a, it's a problem or a, like a disease, you know? <laughs> But experiences maybe isn't the right word. Like, oh, I'm having an experience of a hot flush right now. How <laughs> joyful. Um, it's hard to frame it that way sometimes. But I think, I think a lot of times it is like the food issues. And I'm, I'll use the air quotes, even though not everyone can see the air quotes here on my, on my screen, but poor sleep or inadequate sleep as a result of what may, we may be experiencing in our perimenopause or early postmenopause years, that disruption of sleep then can affect insulin resistance. Then maybe we think we're eating healthfully or you know whatnot, and uh, we're having some blood sugar issues so we can try and address the food piece, but if we're not targeting some of that sleep disruption, really trying to figure out 
Do we need menopause hormone therapy? Do we need to figure out our sleep hygiene? It's like all these things are connected, right? And so a lot of times when someone's coming to me for nutrition help, we reveal through our discovery together, oh gosh, you know what? The sleep really has to be prioritized just as much as what we're going to do with our food. Um, Or, you know, if our stress is not managed well, or we have extra of those not so fun stressors, you know, it's the stress, it's the issue, your food is, you know, we'll figure that out, but it's looking good, better than you think um, sometimes, right? And it's those other pieces or the exercise programming. But I will add, if I had to pick a few things nutritionally, common things that I see with active women over 50 or are, you know, this range is, is resistance to increasing protein every day, not knowing how to do that. The other side of this beautiful equation is the fiber piece, um, really trying to bump up plant intake, uh, from vegetables specifically that can be hard. And I know sometimes you know, we really have to plan for it, but those two things come up again and again is a common challenge. I'm so glad you mentioned sleep and stress because when I first started health coaching, uh, most of my clients were women over 40. I'd say 80% of them came to me to lose weight, belly fat, and 80% of them, I couldn't understand what was going on in the beginning. I say, their diet looks okay. Either they're lying or or something else. It's got to be something else because their diet seems okay. And they're exercising like crazy. And in fact, anything, I think they were in a low energy state and on reflection. So I said, there's got to be something else. And so digging in a little deeper and having more experience, I realized I think it's sleep and they couldn't sleep because they were stressed. So, you know, after a while I said, you know, when I get clients like this, I just said, I could spot it right away. And I'd said, you know what, let's just not even focus on the diet and the exercise. And that was a real shock. I said, let's, let's work on your sleep okay, and, the, and your stress. Once they did that, the weight fell off. It was shocking to me when you're not really expecting it. I mean, you read about it, you hear about it, but when you see it, you think, wow, this is really, really powerful. And not only did they lose the weight, but so many other aspects of their lives, their gastrointestinal distress or their, their skin or issues, problems that arthritis even, you know all just came together. So I'm so glad you focused a lot on sleep because I'm so passionate about that. And I I just think it's the magic bullet. It's a real good miracle. And if everybody wants to go first to the diet and the exercise. So I appreciate that. Zora, so true. I'm glad that you, I mean, I I knew you had that as a big piece of your work too. I think it's essential, uh, sleep so undervalued and we We think it's just a waste of time sometimes, like I should be doing, you know, other work right now or other, uh, the other million things, but without quality sleep, sufficient sleep, the proper sleep patterns and rhythms and everything, we just cannot get ahead. Um, And so in our middle years of our, of our lifespan, health span, that, that has to be given attention. Absolutely. Hey. I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. Why is it so hard for women over 50 to lose weight and gain muscle like they used to when they were in their 20s? Ooh, I know. I wish we had the single answer. We can figure out mechanistically some of the things going on, but to combat that or work with that, it's not 100%. Here it is. Follow this formula and you're golden. It's so individual, but at the base of it is the hormonal flux that occurs. It's just that there's so much variance between women in hormonal flux. What does that look like? And we don't have the technology to track it, you know, like our aura rings or things like that. Like, oh yeah, that makes sense. My estrogen to progesterone ratio is way wackadoodle right now. That makes sense why things aren't, you know, happening as easily. But I would say, 
that over time, the decrease in the estrogen level or estradiol level, um, we lose that protective effect, that anabolic effect of estradiol. And of course it affects many systems of the body, but in particular, the ability to use the same set of stimuli to build muscle changes as a result. So that's why, you know, researchers and scientists like Dr. Stacy Sims and, and many others are advocating, and it's not totally new. It's just come to the forefront more that we have to change our exercise patterns to really work with that change in our hormonal status. Plus the fact that we're aging, we can't stop that either. So how do we redesign our programming to work with that? And then nutritionally, of course, there's a sleep thing there all the time, but nutritionally shifting some of our patterns where, you know, what we ate when we were 20, 30, maybe 35, it doesn't work quite the same. And a lot of us go to the opposite, maybe from our diet culture, you know, wiring like, oh, I got to eat less because I'm, I'm gaining a few pounds or clothes fit differently. And, and actually we just need to eat more strategically and figure out what that looks like. So it's not necessarily less, but it may be more of a quality issue looking nutritionally at proteins, being more timely or purposeful with our carbohydrate timing around workouts, training, and then the quality of those carbohydrates as well. So does the carbohydrate intake change? day-to-day -day or depending on the training? Well, I would say ideally it does that we adapt and we don't have to get obsessed, you know, like every gram of carb or this glycemic index carb versus that one, but we can learn models to really work with amount of carbohydrate around workouts versus, you know what, the rest of the day shifting Maybe it is the more fibrous kind of carbohydrates, like more of those, perhaps more non-starchy vegetables. And I'm not demonizing any food. It's just like being kind of particular. Uh, so overall carbohydrate content can certainly be less than what it was when we were 30, but we're not trying to do extreme caloric deficit or extreme low carb. It might be a low to moderate on some days and moderate on other days. Again, it's, it's a bit fluid, but we can learn that periodization aspect of nutrition and still enjoy all foods at the same time. And I imagine it also has to depend on what is it that you're going for? Is it weight loss, weight gain, uh, gastrointestinal distress, uh, so many things that could, it could vary. So I'm being very general. I'm sorry. No, but good point, Zora. What is our context? It's a question to keep bringing back to or bringing up, right? For each of us, what is it I want? What is it I need? Where have I been? Where am I going? And, and then we work within that. So tell me then, you probably see a lot of women who are managing their hormones and help, you're helping them, I'm sure, get them balanced naturally. And you probably see women who are on bioidentical hormone therapy. Do you see any differences in their results or training or exercise, food, whatever it is between the two of them? That's a good one too, Zora. I think, you know, if I think about that question, I think it depends on the starting point of the person or the woman, meaning in our perimenopause years, if our quality of life is kind of, you know, suffering, not sleeping, poor energy, mood swings, you name it, and hormone therapy has started, there's such a restoration of this vitality and the sense of, I don't know that normalcy is the right word because I don't know what that is sometimes, but like, oh, good, I feel myself again. And I've started this hormone therapy. So I think in that sense, it's kind of like, well, and then if the other woman like, you know what, my perimenopause version, it's not all that bad. I don't have much of what you went through. So I, I think we kind of have to look within the woman and see like, what is your experience and how does hormone therapy remedy some of the things that you were suffering with, or just like not you know, you checked all the other boxes, sleep, nutrition, exercise, all the other, you know, happiness, 
boxes and, and we needed this to really, to get out of the hole we were climbing into. So I think from that sense, I can see a touch more of that pep and, and ability to put energy towards, you know, life with hormone therapy. But I work with plenty of women who don't go that route and there may be harder bouts, but we really just try and address all of the aspects that we can. And then, you know, result or resort to hormone therapy if there is no progress. Thank you for clarifying that. I I have a question too about the hormonal therapy because when you get go through hormonal therapy, you you talk about mainly estrogen, uh, progesterone, and uh, testosterone. And there's some people who say, or doctors or researchers who say, well, testosterone don't even think about it for muscle mass and building doesn't go or, and then you have the others who say, actually, yes, it does help. So this is very confusing. Have you seen in your clients or, or in your research, any, any one or the other? I have seen benefits with body composition for hormone therapy supplementation or that, that regimen introduced sometimes. And this is kind of anecdotal, Zora. I mean, I, you know, there's different forms and doses. And again, where we trained going into perimenopause, meaning pretty athletic, or are we just like now getting into that more? Have we changed our exercise programming? A lot of variables, or if we're um, tinkering around with nutrition, you know, that, that influence too. But I will say anecdotally, I have seen ability to manipulate body composition with hormone therapy. I just haven't figured out like how (laughs) the common theme for, for all these women, because there's so many inputs. Hmm, Interesting. Thank you. I I really wanted to see on your experience. Of course we, you know, it's like you said, anecdotal and, but uh, this is what you're saying. So it's interesting. So I want to open up the panel for people to ask questions, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about your program, your coaching, your group coaching program, the nourish circle that you do twice a year. Uh, how does that work? What do you, what do you get? Well, thanks Zora. Yeah. So I started in at the beginning of 2021, uh, this program called the nourish circle. And it's, it's evolved to be a 16 week, pretty intensive program, small group, intimate group of women in perimenopause, postmenopause years. I do work with active athletic women. So this group is, you know, my goal was to, especially with our pandemic, like to bring together this small group, a community sense. Um, but because we all go through, you know, this part of our lives in different ways, how can we share that and do something bigger? So not only for ourselves, but like, what can I do to change the language around perimenopause, the stigma around it? Um, in the program though, I go through a number of different aspects of women's specific nutrition guidance recommendations, steps, things for each of us to look at carefully with our own nutrition and with that kind of, um, athletic, you know, whatever your athletic ability or state is, or what you're going for from that side, how should nutrition look or what can best serve you? So essentially it's, uh, online learning platform. So I release content. i I meant to add it up, but I think it's about 10 or 12 hours of online learning. But then we have a community group too, where we meet every other week via Zoom. So it's people all over the world and we uh, share in our learning, talk about the topics in our program. And it's a lot of swapping of ideas as well. So it's supportive, educational, and then we're doing stuff too. So I, I give. I don't know if I should use the word homework, but it's like implementation and tools to go out and do and learn and see how this stuff works for you. And then the goal is that this, you know, transcends the time that we have together that, that you can continue with these strategies and tips beyond our time together. 
This is such a great idea. I think community is the best part of this and we learn from each other and it's wonderful. You give quote unquote homework to see if something works or doesn't. And then they can come back to you and and say, look, it didn't work or, hey, this worked out fantastically, encouraging others to maybe try out whatever they did. So I love that. So it is twice a year you do this? I do right now. Yeah. So I'm, uh, my spring cohort is opening here in a few weeks. Well, it's open for registration, but we start in the spring and then in February, I should say. And then, uh, in the fall months is the, the next program. So where can people find out more information or sign up? Oh yeah. Uh, on my website, nutritionmechanic.com, there's a link to the nurse circle under the services tab. Wonderful. So that's a 16 week, 16 weeks. It's a commitment. I mean, I want, I want, you know, some doing and commitment and because I'm passionate about this stuff, we can't as many people know, or, or should know, I guess we can't make meaningful change in a week's time, especially because it's such a interesting journey and unique for all of us. So that time together really allows for figuring out where are you, you know, what do you see as your, um, you know, areas where you can improve, but what do I see as a dietitian and, you know, the guide, the educator, where do I see some things, you know, where you could possibly enhance what you're doing? So it's, it's not a diet program by any means. It's a, you know, learning and doing kind of program. Do you ask for people to give the health assessment or form, you know, to know where they're at? Totally. Sora, you know how important that is, you know, blood work, any kind of diagnostic. I have a whole set of uh, questionnaires so that I can learn each person individually. Um, Mm. So yeah, it is pretty comprehensive in that sense. Oh, that's a lot of work. Yeah. So (laughs) can I ask how much is that? So that uh, is three forty-seven U.S. dollars per month for the early bird registration. Very affordable for what you get. <laughs> I know what it's like to health coach. So you're—that's probably why you're keeping it to a smaller group, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. So anyone here has questions for Dina? Hello. I would like to ask something. Today I was listening to the second podcast of Dr. Sinclair. He is now posting, I don't know, every week, I think, a podcast. And it was about eating habits. And I don't agree with everything what he said, but I would like to hear your opinion because he was talking about intermittent fasting. His uh, intermittent fasting lately, I don't know now, for maybe half of the year, with one meal only, dinner time. And he was uh, explaining why eating meat is not okay. He became vegetarian and he was telling about proteins which are like harmful, harmful for the body, for the longevity, because he said that... um, Canadians are mostly eating like carbohydrates. So I would like to get uh, from your side, what is your opinion about it? Because we know that without proteins, we we cannot build muscles. And when we're getting older, we are losing these muscles. I see uh, on my body because I'm going to be 57 this year. And I see even I go to fitness every day, it's quite hard to build this muscle or at least to keep them the, the same weight, let me say. So I would like to hear uh, your opinion on this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Magdalena. That's a great one. And I haven't heard that particular podcast yet from him. I'm aware of who you're referring to. I think this does come back to looking at perhaps what the research is that he's pulling from. And I know he's been in the world of science for some time, but where does the information originate? What groups or populations and how does it apply to us? Right. As his goal is longevity, how to live wow. long. Yeah. That, that was the, the, the meaning of the research. Longevity is how to say, uh, if you would like to really live long, healthy lifestyle, uh, healthy life, then it means you should eat less, of course, less, and that the window when you are not eating is 
longer and longer every day. If you can eat uh, not eat, let me say, a few days, it's even better. But if you eat one or max two times a day, it's great that you have at least 16 hours uh, window not eating anything a day. And he said that when they were checking the nursery homes, they saw that who is the, the oldest there were really tiny little women. They were the oldest one and they, they were really very, very slim. And he revert uh, to this that it's better not to eat a lot uh, and you can live long, healthy life. Yeah, it's, it's kind of loaded. And Zora, you feel free to come in too with your, your knowledge. But I'm like, well, we can live long and be not strong, <laughs> lose our muscle, right? By under eating, doing these long fasted windows that may show a little bit right now what we are seeing that you can live longer, but I'm just wondering quality of life, you know, like being able to carry your own bag of groceries kind of thing. I think here too, as active athletic women that intermittent fasting, we put ourselves at a little bit more risk for other health consequences that besides longevity. And so that I think sometimes we get pigeonholed into just like longer lifespan or health span, but we're missing some of the other things. And in perimenopause, knowing there's quite a bit of this stress state on the body being in so much flux that do we want to add to that with long fasting windows on top of exercise and the other things going on in the body? I think that's where we have to remember the context difference. I think what I heard Magdalena say was nursing home and tiny little women. And that to me means frail. So frailty is, is a big deal. And, you know, living through a long life, like you said, a bit frail is not my goal. I mean, it depends on, you know, who you are, maybe, maybe you're okay with it. But I would say, like you said, uh, just to add to that is context and what is your goal? So if he's looking at little women in nursing homes, that's not where I want to be looking. I'd rather be looking at women who are in their 90s in the field climbing a tree or something. Exactly. He yeah. was mentioning also a fasting mimicking diet, you know, very well, Zora, <laughs> because he was mentioning your professor, uh, Dr. Walter Longo, and he was really, uh, he agreed with him, you know, because I know that uh, Dr. Longo is also kind of against uh, too much protein. So I am really confused because I know that Dr. Sinclair is one of the most important scientists on longevity field. And, you know, I, I was confused and I was really very, very um, under uh, this podcast, you know, <laughs> today, because that was something I didn't want to hear. And I don't know what should I think now, because I am fasting every day, 16 hours, but I cannot train not to eat, you know, I could not, let me say, be without a food till eight or nine o'clock in, in the evening and have a training, let me say at noon or something like this, no go, because I need energy. And I know that my muscle will not remain the way I have now because I know I'm losing it without protein. So I didn't want to hear this, what he said, but I don't know now who, I'm sure that he, he is right in a way. I just don't know how to put what he said today in the concept of my lifestyle, you know. <laughs> That's why I wanted to expose this. Yeah, Magdalena, I think remembering too that research is, largely based on animal models, rat, mice, and sedentary individuals, not even in, so sedentary, mostly men. It's not even what you and I are. Exactly. I remember once when he had a podcast with Joe Rogan a few years ago, he said that actually he's not even exercising because he doesn't have time. He's exercising only maybe Saturday and Sunday. Otherwise, he's just working or on a plane, you know, traveling the world, world because he has these um, uh, different conferences and so. And uh, yeah, I was 
thinking exactly you know his lifestyle is different and he's a man and we are women and we are in menopause men doesn't uh, don't have this kind of problems and so on yeah yeah you're bringing up a very valid point and i think that's important for everyone to really hear is you know putting your filter on where is the research coming from is this based on my population and they won't say that it isn't because that doesn't make for a fun podcast for some of them, but I think that's a thing, Magdalena, is it's not appropriate for us, especially if you're looking to maintain what it is you have or further build. So I know it can be confusing, but I would um, maybe not take that advice right now <laughs> or at all. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. We need to remember context always. And this yes. is so important because I studied with Dr. Walter Longo and we had a class on genes and longevity and nutrition. And I think everybody in that class became a protein phobe. We yeah. were so afraid. His arguments were amazing. I mean, his, his research is unbelievable. And I know that uh, David Sinclair as well is, you know, they're very much in, in, in touch and in line. And Dr. Longo is very, I mean, it's not only his research, he looks at epidemiological studies, he looks at, uh, he goes to the blue zones and, you know, so he has quite a, an argument. And if, if you look at the people who are the longest living people in the world, yes, they are eating carbohydrates. They are eating a lot of carbohydrates. They're eating meat, but maybe not so much. And this is where he gets his argument and they're a little fat. They're just a little overweight. And so having a little bit of fat in the body is good too. So, and they are generally actually, uh, some of them are, are moving, right? But some of them not at all because they may have some mutations, gene mutations that make them live longer too. So these are the kind of people he's studying. Now, does this apply to you? And sometimes the oldest people in the world they're looking at what they're doing now. Now, I'm not 90 years old yet. You know, what were those people who were in their 90s? What were they doing when they were in their 50s? What were they doing when they were in their 40s? That's my question. I, I appreciate what they're doing now, but I'm not going to live my life like a 90-year-old. I want to get to 90 and 100. So I think we need to take the information, look at it, analyze it, don't, you know, throw it out the window. But how does this apply to you? And this is why I like Dina. And what she does is because she does the research and then she takes client by client and says, this applies to you or this doesn't apply to you. Because just like you, Magdalena, I can be very confused. We're all confused. <laughs> we all read this stuff and we all get confused. So we have to just always try to take a step back and say, how does this apply to me? And, uh, and, you know, I always like to experiment. I would say, you know, to people, why don't try, see, see how you feel, because I think your body will tell you, I mean, if you're eating once a day and you don't feel good and you don't have energy, I don't care what David Sinclair says, it's not working for you. Agreed, Zora. So there's another question here. Do you find that alcohol has more of a negative effect in post and perimenopausal women? Bottom line is yes, <laughs> which can be hard to hear sometimes, right? If, if we do enjoy alcohol, but I think the main thing that I see is the effect on sleep quality and then what the next day brings as a result of poor sleep quality. Um, I mean, even just one glass for some women, especially in perimenopause or one, one drink, it can definitely be disruptive. And I'm new to my aura ring, but I have already seen that in the last, you know, the number of days that I've been collecting, uh, like, oh, I, I had a glass of wine and all things trying to remain constant, you know, same exercise with a drink at night versus not and just sleep disruption. So I, I do see that even on a personal level, but, um, I mean, again, here, is putting it into context because the quality of life and enjoyment factor, if that's something that's important and it's, you have the ability to control that or feel that it's not taking control of your life, then there's that to, to weigh out. But I would say overall, it seems to affect the vasomotor symptoms and sleep much more than without alcohol in the picture. I agree on this because this was also uh, the point of discussion with Dr. Sinclair. He said, of course, you know, he's the res resveratrol guy. And he said, it's very, very healthy if you drink a glass or two red wine. 
every day because it's full of resveratrol. But then when you listen to Dr. David Amen, he will say not even one glass because it's not good for our brain. It can damage our brain. And as you said, I also have my aura ring and whenever, maybe once or twice a year for New Year's Day or some such a certain celebrity days, let me say, I drink maybe a glass and I can see the same very bad results in my aura and my low HRV and bad sleep pattern and so on. So I would agree with you on this. Yeah, it's almost like we didn't need the aura to know, oh, my sleep was not great. <laughs> but when you have the data to validate, okay, okay, yeah, making that decision. But your good point, Magdalena, of effects on brain health, let alone, you know, how that ties to disrupted sleep over time or sleep affects brain health, but there are other consequences, I think, um, independent of the sleep story that alcohol has. So uh, so Vicky's chiming in. She also finds that it affects her resting heart rate and HRV. And, and that's why I love these gadgets because it kind of confirms what we already know. Maybe mm. we don't want to look at it, but it does. And, and I don't know if anybody here has used a glucose, a blood glucose monitor, but I always uh, teach people how to use that. I have groups as well. And, and it's amazing how I see some, some people, they, when they have a, a glass of alcohol, whether it's wine or something else, their blood sugar actually gets a little bit regulated, but then it comes back and bites them in the ass in the middle of the night. And they just think, oh, because, you know, they get kind of happy. Oh, I can have a glass of wine to blunt the, the, the blood sugar, but it does come back. And they do recognize it. this in, in my experience. What is your experiences? Why is the blood sugar being more balanced with that? I haven't seen it be more balanced. Zora, for the most part. So yeah, I see more dysregulated blood glucose. I mean, and I've seen lows as a result of alcohol, especially with people who already have some issues with insulin resistance or other blood sugar issues, maybe in the pre-diabetes range. So I've seen all over the place though. I have seen elevated blood glucose as a result. And, and maybe that is partly because of food that's consumed as a result of drinking as well. So it, I think it is one of those things, a uh, CGM or a glucose monitor can shine the light. How does this affect me? And then know the consequences of that to make the decision if it's, if it's worth it. I've got one last question before I let you go. If there's one piece of advice that you'd give to a woman over 50 who is struggling with her health, whether it be weight or something else, how would you say is the best way to correct it? Oh, Zora, I know. I wish we had the magic wand, right? To just wave that and be relieved of everything. But I, I think one thing is, and kind of Magdalena, you touched on this in an indirect way, is, is really figuring out where you are, which can be hard. Because what I'm saying is like, it's almost as if we need to remove from all of the noise out there, people saying you need this, or you should do this, even though I work in nutrition coaching and I have guidance for everyone, but you have to know where your starting point is. So this isn't a tangible, you know, go do this kind of answer, but meaning like go eat more broccoli, but it is more try and figure out what it is that you can tackle maybe more easily because we can easily get overwhelmed with all of the information coming our way and feel like we have to do it all. But I think figuring out where the pain points are for you and then, and then taking those steps forward in what's most easily achievable or, you know, more realistically you're able to tackle. So it's, it's kind of like, well, let's figure out your context which I know can be a very general response, but it's important to not skip over that. Oh, I, I love that advice because yeah, block out the noise, find out yourself who you are and listen to your body. So are there any of the last thoughts, things that we haven't covered yet that you'd like to share before I let you go? I think the last things were as just, you know, being grateful for you and all, what you're doing with your community and for all of us to share in this journey and having compassion with ourselves, which sounds woo-woo, but it's such an important piece that we can make our new code. We can make our new scripts for what we're going through. And we have the choice to 
you know, work with this in a positive manner instead of feeling like it's doom and gloom. So I think having a support system like what you offer Zora is so essential and for everyone to find their community to um, help them thrive. Oh, I love this community. And I found you through the Feisty Menopause Summit. I loved your, your speech there. And I'm so glad that we're connected this way. And I want to connect more people. This is why I've reached out to you and Celine Yeager and, and Stacey Sims. I want to bring my community because they need to find out about this. <laughs> it's wonderful to have that support and know that you're not alone. And we can talk about menopause. We can talk about older age and without any judgment. And we know that the other people going through this with us. I highly recommend people follow you as well, not only on your Instagram as Nutrition Mechanic, because it's so easy to remember, but you got a great podcast too called Inside Sports Nutrition that you're hosting with, I believe it was your mentor, Bob. Uh, Bob, yeah. what's last Bob name? Bob Sibahar. Yeah, we just started a podcast in December, all yeah. things sports nutrition. Thank you for mentioning that, Zora. Yeah, no, I just started listening to it. I love it. So if people want to get in touch with you, they can reach you on Instagram, Nutrition Mechanic, or go to your website, which is also nutritionmechanic.com. And I will have uh, links in the show notes, how to reach you, how to get into the Nourish Circle if they want to get into that. What is the last date to sign up for the Nourish Circle? So depending on on uh, the size of the group, which I try to keep at 10. So depending on enrollments, we're starting on February 23rd. So I'm not sure mm. when this podcast is, is actually being published to the masses, but um, otherwise we can get you on the list for a future course. Great. We'll have it in time. We'll have it in time for you and just probably just have to hurry and get in. So thank you so much, Dina, for your time. I really appreciate your work, your focus on women over 50. You are just a wealth of information and I love learning from you. So have a wonderful day. Thank you, Zora. I've so enjoyed our time together. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.